Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's the body of Christ alive. And that's why when I come to this passage, sometimes I'm so overwhelmed by Ephesians and by what Paul is giving to us as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because he sees the vision of the body of Christ receiving this fullness. So, for example, if you look at your text, your Bibles, and if you don't have one, I realize you memorized it. <laughs> In chapter 3, you'll find, um, just pick up this verse um, from the prayer from verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Are you there? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, before whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded, not be able to come through with all the saints, for the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What does that mean to you? Yeah. So, so Martin Lloyd-Jones, this fabulous preacher from the last century, when he got into the pulpit in 1963, he spent, yes, nine sermons on Galatians 6.14. Nine sermons on Galatians 6.14. You can find it in a book called The Cross. And when he got up, he said that the, the fall of 1963, he said, you know, I've been in the pulpit for 25 years, and somehow Satan convinced me that I knew it all, that I had preached it all. And I'm here to say I haven't even the gospel. Why is that? Well, because of the, the, if I can look at chapter 3 and verse 8, because of the unsurpassable riches of Christ. This, the wonder of the fullness of the Lord for us every day that we breathe, for as long as we've been given life, and then we pass from this life into glory. The riches, the infinite love of the Lord that will never cease to amaze us. One of the hardest places a Christian can ever get is when you're fixed and you think you've heard it all. No, 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 no. It's, this, it's the receiving of this fullness that the Lord wants us to have to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is what Paul, this is what Paul had as his passion in ministry. If you look at the end of Colossians 1, he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, Him we proclaim, warning every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ, perfect in Christ. For this purpose I labor, what? For the maturity of the body of Christ. Why is that? Well, because we are to be the people of the Lord who are knowing how to, to be in the body of Christ, to experience the fullness of the, of the measure of the grace of the Lord in our midst, where He is present, where the light begins to shine in us and through us and out to a world in desperate need of His gospel. Does that make sense to you? Yes. So consequently, it is not a gospel that is just designed for me. And this is part of my heart. This is why during the course of the history of the church, you see these revivals come to awaken a dead church. 
lost in all of these different things. And I make my appeal to you today because I think what has happened in 2018 and where our culture is and where our story is, there is no greater need in our country and in the world today for the body of Jesus Christ, the church, to rise up in a day when darkness is permeating the world. Where are they going to find the light? Where are they going to find healing? Where are they going to find answers? Where are they going to find grace? Where are they going to find the fullness? The fullness. Unless we are who the Lord has called us to be. And so for me, one of the greatest impediments that's happening to the church across the way, just like I said, generally, is that we come to an era dominant in what I would call the gospel of superficiality. Listen, if you're going to the ER and you get the doctor to come in and you tell the doctor what the symptoms are and you treat the symptoms, the doctor treats the symptoms and you feel better and sends you on your way, you will have walked in and walked out with the disease remaining. Who wants their symptoms treated and not the disease itself treated? No doctor with the salt of being a doctor should ever treat symptoms without getting beyond the symptoms to find the cause of the problem. Do you understand? You see the need of it? And yet there has been in our day a church that has written up, that has risen up, that is basically an entertainment church. It knows how to entertain. It knows how to flash lights and dance and music that appeals to the culture. It knows how to give a message that people say, I'm coming back to that church. And it's, it's, it's meeting needs, tangible needs. I'm also very aware of, of, of churches where, where, where they're, they're lovely, they're wonderful, they're awesome, but there's a fundamental avoidance of dealing with things that are real. And the only way I can say this is that the other night our neighbor died about 10 days ago, and we went to the funeral of our neighbor. And Christians gathered, and the preacher rose to the pulpit and gave us Easter. He gave us Easter. Bathed the whole thing in Easter. He gave us Easter over and over so that we need to, we need to know that this, this dead neighbor is now with Jesus. You can be with Jesus because Jesus rose. You can be with Jesus. And meanwhile, as much as this is real for the family, the family was grieving. There was something real, tangible about the sorrow in their hearts. But it wasn't about sorrow. It was, it was avoidance of the sorrow. And the gospel of superficiality always breeds Christians who are superficial. And a culture of superficiality. Which means it's not really a safe place to share. Especially when we've got pains inside us we don't know what to do with. And so we, 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 we talk to each other on a superficial level. And we, we um, pray kind of superficially. And if somebody's going through struggle, we pull out like Romans 8, 28 and like paste it on them. <laughs> Maybe a few other choice scriptures and, and just hope just a little, little infusion will help them. Rather than actually saying, this gospel is a gospel where suffering is known. It's a gospel to be. It's a gospel that meets us deep inside. Is a Savior who knows all about suffering deeper than the suffering we know. Let me come along.
alongside you. Let's together walk alongside until we see the Savior. Such a This is a heartache for me because what the, the backdrop of this is that from the beginning of Scripture you want to find it is the devil's desire for the church to flourish, for the Bible to be distorted and twisted so that you get your symptoms treated, but the cure never treated. And so there are only superficial conversions that are not conversions at all. Do you understand? Yes. Let me just walk the story with you. A man came into my office one day in utter moral failure. My job is to find out first. I didn't know this man at all. I don't know how he found me. I don't know why it happened, but he was in desperate need. And so I asked him the first question. I need to know what to do with a Christian man. Now, I'm not being judgmental. Please understand. I, but I need to know the ground on which to talk with him. I need to ask some testing questions to find out. Isn't this what doctors do? To find out sort of what's going on. So I asked him, are you a Christian man? And he said, well, I gave my life to Christ. I said, can you tell me about it? He said, yeah, I was like at a rock concert. This guy came out and did John 3.16 and said, basically, you know, do you want to go to hell? No. Do you want to go to eternal life? Yes. Then ask Jesus in your life. John 3.16. John 3.16. His life was not changed after that moment. I asked him, have you found yourself quite alive? Do you know what's like? Are you part of the, are you part of the following Jesus? He didn't want to talk about that. He was in moral failure. He only, like I said last night, the circumstance was too dumb. Do you realize that John 3.16 doesn't stand by itself? It isn't just, it isn't just a pen that's like, get out of the Bible and go, got it. <laughs> so believe on Jesus and he'll be saved. Thank you, Lord. Well, what does it mean to believe on Jesus? Who is he? What's he done? Is there any reason it calls for death? Does anyone want to talk about death in this conversation? Because to be honest, you might think that the soul is different than the body, but when you're dealing with issues of the body, you want the disease dealt with. Am I wrong? No, you want, you want treatment of the, of the actual cause. So if I come into my clinic almost about to rupture, and I feel pain, and all the doctor gives me is morphine, whoo, I don't feel any more pain. Woohoo! What's going to happen to the appendix? Yes, and, and, and so my point is this, is that we cannot have churches that are preaching a gospel that doesn't save, that doesn't give treatment to the soul that's real deep, that doesn't leave the hearts of people, the suffering that's underneath, where people are living real lives in real burdens. People who have, who have carried burdens all their life, have things done to them, things that they've done, and they come in here a superficial gospel that, that washes over them, and if they just simply do it, well, he's it. No, no. John 3.16 is a part of the discourse that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And what he wants to do with Nicodemus is teach him what exactly Christ passage is teaching us. This fullness of life is available to us. The head, from whom the whole body, this derivative life that comes from the head to the body is available to us. And, and, and you'll see Jesus is quite pointed. This is not an Anglican message, I know that. But it's yours, the Bible message. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I was raised in the Episcopal Church. And nobody ever told me I had to be born again. Same thing you've 
until I came into a church revived, which happened to be an Episcopal church. Stunning. But it was. And suddenly the Bible was being preached, and I was hearing, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God. And on goes this discourse that's going to, that's going to in some translations, culminate with John 3.16 and, and, and on, where, where, where we learn the wonder of this message. But John 3.16 is in the line of a conversation. And what I want to say is that conversation has profound depth to diagnosing our story. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go to John 3, let me just show you um, the passage of what Jesus does. He gives such a very quick, he gives a very quick image. Again, speaking of the fullness of that that comes from the head, he gives us a very specific image that requires that you know your Old Testament. And it comes in verse 14, when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so immediately, he goes back to a moment in the days of, of the wilderness experience where Moses lifted up the serpent. And suddenly that demonstration, that activity of Moses and what he is doing is directly parallel to what is going to happen to Jesus. As the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, this is very critical because that takes us back to Numbers 21. Again, if you have your Bibles, Numbers 21. This is, um, to me, extremely important and somehow, I think sometimes, extremely hard to understand. For me, it is anyway. And I'll tell you why. Is that, is that what Jesus is doing is taking us back to a day when the Israelites were complaining and murmuring and grumbling. I think that would be any day. If you actually study the wilderness wanderings and you know what's going on with them. There is a chronic self-addiction inside the Israelites. Anytime they don't get their needs met, they're done. We're going back to Egypt. They turn against the Lord, they turn against Moses, and out of their mouth spews this me. I need, you're not providing, this stupid manna. I mean, we're done. And, and the problem with this, the reason I say it's hard to understand, is that these are people who saw the mighty signs in Egypt with the plagues. These are the ones who saw the, the, the parting of the Red Sea and the dry land. These are the ones who got through and watched the enemy defeated in the Song of Miriam. And, and immediately as this happens and the manna comes and they don't have water, they start to grumble. These are the people who saw the glory of the Lord down upon Mount Sinai. They are the voice of the Lord. My friends, they were experiencing the things that belonged to the Lord. But the testimony of them is that they did not believe. Their heart is hard. You'll find that in Psalm 95. You'll find that completely expositive for you in Hebrews 3. So much so that the Lord says in Numbers 14, almost in an exhaustion, Numbers 14, verse 11, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? They don't believe. And so here, I would say to you, you've got this chronic conversation about grumbling, about murmuring, about self, about the moment our needs are not met. And 
Jesus says, that story is the universal story, suddenly we're beginning to see a diagnostic about us. We are born in this world centered on me. Because we have actually got the life of the prince of the power of the air governing us, do we not? Where sin has come into the world, disobedience has come into the world, death has come into the world, and the devil. And what's the main focus of the devil? I will exalt myself to the seat of the Most High. Self-exaltation has always been the mark of the devil. <coughs> and somehow inside of us we're seeing this murmur, this groaning as the condition and diagnosis of the soul. If things don't go right with us, do you know this murmuring? This murmuring inside? And so the imagery that happens here in Numbers chapter 21 and you'll find this in verse, in verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the Israelites died. Many people of Israel died in came the fiery serpents. Now, at once you can see this is God's justice, God's judgment. He had been restraining in the wilderness the fiery serpents. And now he steps back and, they, and sends in the fiery serpents. They've got poison, they've got venom, they blind the people, the people are dying. But it's also the Lord's mercy. And I, I want you to hear that also. Because the Lord's mercy is to show us the diagnosis of our soul, our need. And what a more perfect image could you ever have? And this is why Jesus, I believe, picks it up in John 3 than the fiery serpent. And the fiery serpent. Where have you heard the fiery serpent before? When is the first mention of the fiery serpent? Genesis chapter three. chapter 3. In comes the serpent into the Garden of Eden. Revelation 12 is going to call him Satan, the devil, that ancient serpent of old. This is, the, this is the imagery of the devil himself. And what he has done categorically to oversee, to to rule, to be the prince of the power of the air, to be the god of this age. From the beginning, this has been the discourse, the world, the flesh, the devil. And suddenly, rather than just seeing the fiery servants as a result of their grumbling, they're actually seeing the source of their grumbling. We have sinned. We have disobeyed. We are under the influence of the, of the, of the ancient serpents of old. It's the most perfect imagery. And that's, I think, part of why Jesus lifts up and picks it up. Because he wants us to see the condition of the soul. He wants us to know why he has come. In an amazing moment, suddenly, these eyes are open. And you can hear it in their confession in verse 7. And the people came to Numbers 21 verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. This is a, this is a gift. You see, this is the recognition of the diagnosis. And the actual statement itself, we have sinned. This, this is our issue. It is, a, it is an act of confession. It is an act of repentance. Is an act of identification. 
And this is why, and I need to be so specific of why I think sometimes our Anglican heritage is so deep and so rich and so full, is that we are people who know how to do that. That before Easter comes, Good Friday comes. And before Good Friday comes, we come to a season of finding out what's going on with our soul. It's allowing the spirits of God, the word of God, and the people of God, and the pastors to be able to allow the spirit of God to convict us of the things that we've done wrong, or things that have been done wrong to us, areas in our life that we're holding back, chronic issues that have happened to us, that moment that we can actually identify, I've sinned. It's not anybody else's fault. I own this for myself. This moment is, is to be held because it's a confrontational moment. And I understand why many pastors today don't want to talk about repentance, don't want to talk about sin. Because one day people feel good, I do it. Are you well? You do okay? And I can change your symptom and you'll be fine and go home. But actually what we're looking for is something that goes deeper into the soul. Where we actually know our diagnosis. I know this is hard to say it sometimes. But, but Lord, thank you that the fiery serpents have come in and shown me who I am and my name. Does that make sense to you? Is that crazy? It's why you've got somebody like Nathan coming to David and saying, David, I got a story for you. I got a story for you. He said, David, you're the man. I know what you've done. If you look at Psalm 32, you're going to find that David was groaning under the weight of his sin. But Nathan came. The Lord came through Nathan. He spoke the word, and suddenly David knew his diagnosis. Then what did David do? Out came Psalm 51. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, have mercy upon me. What's going on in that song? Oh, create me a clean heart. Look, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, what have I done? What have I done? And you want somebody really to come in and like slap Romans 8.28 or slap John 3.16 on you? Or do you really want the Lord now to give the kind of medicine that can heal the soul and forgive, and not just forgive, set you free in that forgiveness, that you can go about life free, alive, healthy, well, because the suffering you've suffered has been dealt with by the Lord. Does that make sense to you? And so the Lord gives the way of salvation, the way of healing in the story. He says to Moses, he says to Moses, in verse 7, verse 18, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And we're going to find out at the end of the next verse, there's a bronze serpent. He's going to take, it's actually three motions, he's going to make it and set it, and as Jesus tells us in John 3, he's going to lift it. He's going to make it, he's going to set it, and he's going to lift it. And what's he lifting? A bronze serpent. Is that bronze serpent alive? Does that bronze serpent have any power? No. No, that bronze serpent is dead. No. This is the statement that's being made here. Go make a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and then lift it up. What you're declaring on this is the serpent has died. The power of the serpent is over. It has no more ability to hurt you or to harm you. It might bite you, but it can't touch you. <coughs> the venom's got no more strength. And so here's the miracle of the text. 
And, and you can see it. You can see it here in the verses. Everyone who is risen when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What does that mean? It means life came to their body. Again, I go back to the fullness of life that's intended for us. This fullness of it's not just believing in a doctrine. It's not just believing in Christianity. It's not just believing in a creed. It's not just believing with your mind. This is not what Christianity is. No, it's, it's more than that. As the old fathers used to write, it's the life of God in the souls of men. It's the Lord transacting His life into us so that we who are dead become alive. Is that make sense? Do you want to be converted to Christianity by your mind? Or do you want your soul rescued by the Lord? And this is the power that it is experiential. It isn't just mental. It is, it is, it is, it is mind, heart, body, and soul. The conversion is full. But can you imagine this? Can you imagine having venom running through you? And suddenly looking at that hole, that dead serpent, that bronze serpent, and suddenly life comes, and that which was designed to kill you, cannot kill you, and suddenly you're alive. That, my friends, is what it means to be born again in Christ. Is it because you came and said it? It's because he came and did it. And when he came and did it, you were able to say it. <coughs> Make sense? Can you imagine that energy? Isn't it powerful? Isn't it beautiful? Here it is. They, they see, they confess, they repent. The Lord provides a way of salvation. And you'll notice it's his way of salvation. And you'll notice how many people don't like his way of salvation. Even to this day, oh, you Christians, you always talk about Jesus. You don't have any, any big heart that all religions need to know. I, I, I'm afraid for this brief commentary. The, the former presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, upon her initial conversation with Time Magazine, that was her gospel. All paths lead to God. Well, let me just say something. She's not Christian. Not by declaration. That's not true. It's a complete lie. It would not heal the soul. He'll, he'll know that he's learned this. Why? Because the Father has sent the Son into the world that we might not perish, but have life. That's what he's done. He doesn't want us to perish. He doesn't want us to die. He doesn't want us under the stress of an evil one or of sin and of death that have come against us. No, no. He sent his only begotten Son for a purpose to set us. So, can you imagine the conversation of where life begins from the head? And this is where the gospel always begins. It doesn't, I'm so sorry, this is be carefully. I'm not diminishing it. It just doesn't begin Eastern morning. It begins with Friday. Why is that? Because as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man. of the cross is 
In the language of Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and principalities and made a public display of them. He triumphed over them through the cross. Through the cross. And this is why the apostles can never stop talking about the cross. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. God forbid I Lord, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. For the word of the cross, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is why always we run to the cross. Why? Because when we see the cross, life begins. Forgiveness is found at the cross of God. The blood that he sheds for us is the one that, that remits all of our sins and all of our actions, all the devil's faults, and, and the legal transaction that happens, and suddenly life comes to us and we are made clean. And friends, if you know what it means not to be clean, and to have shame in your life, and to know what it's like to be hurt by others and to hurt others, if you know the burdens of the sins that we carry, to realize that this cross can set you free experientially, Real time, not just by the mind trying to grasp it, but by the intervention of the Spirit of God applying the cross to us that we actually see it and then seeing it we think. So God, for a day, when He rises again, He turns and breathes upon us the Holy Spirit, and all things are made new. You can never separate the cross from Easter, or Easter from the cross. The death and the resurrection. It's why the whole imagery of baptism is baptism down into his death. Death, we die. I am crucified with Christ. Boom, up we come. The devil lets me live. But not I. Christ lives in me. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is where life from the head begins. We receive this gift that's given to us. And, and this is how we are saved as a Christian. And this is also the same pattern of how we are ongoingly saved, sanctified in Jesus. That when we know him and are in the midst of struggles, we are brothers and sisters to take us through Lent and get down to the core of what's going on inside of us and then take us to the cross. That's the whole design of Lent. That's what we do year after year. It's why we do it no matter what time it is with somebody. You're going through some struggle. We're going to come to Lent together. Well, that's fun. Yes, it is. Actually, no, 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 it is. I know. Part of the equipment of the saints. And I'm going to be very rude here, 
When I go to church and I don't hear Jesus mentioned, when I don't hear the cross mentioned, when I don't hear the resurrection mentioned, when I hear a good, wonderful sermon by a wonderfully talented preacher, oh my gosh, he looks good, he's saying he's this, I wish I, I'm not like this. Everybody loves him. I don't want a good looking doctor. I want a doctor who can realize that heals the soul. And I want people around me who know how to help, not only to, to, to help me with it, but to apply the medicine. And I want to be someone who helps apply that medicine to others. Because I tell you, this forgiveness is possible in Jesus' name. Freedom is possible in Jesus' name. But it all starts here. It means we do not commit ourselves to superficial Christianity because we don't have a superficial Savior. And if we see somebody in pain, we don't thrust a scripture on their forehead and say, Friend, okay. Oh, it will get better than this. There it is. Ooh. Thank you, Jesus, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that pastor